How do you smell the color orange? I know, seems like an odd question, doesn't it? But there are two things about that question that I think are really instructive for our time together today. The first is this. That question reflects a misunderstanding of the color orange, don't you think? You don't smell it, you don't taste it, you don't hear it, you see it. That's how you experience the color orange. So it reflects a misunderstanding. Second, it reflects a genuine desire to experience the color orange. And that I like. I think that's really cool. When someone says, how do you smell the color orange? Which I've never heard anybody say that other than Bill Walton on NBA Live, but that was a very weird time. Okay, so when someone says, or if someone was to say, how do you smell the color orange? Yes, it reflects a misunderstanding of the color orange, but it also reflects a genuine desire to experience the color orange. Now, the reason I start with that today is that over the summer, we've done this thing on Facebook Live called Ask Pastor Lucas Almost Anything. And we talked about a few weeks ago the nature or concepts of heaven and hell. And probably 90% of the questions that we received were questions like that. How do you smell the color orange? Here's what I mean, and I just want to use one example. I didn't quote this verbatim, so nobody's embarrassed, all that stuff. But one of the questions, or the type of questions that we received were this, or one was this, will we get to spend eternity in heaven with our loved ones? Now, the first thing is, that reflects a genuine desire to understand the nature of heaven to experience the color orange, right? That person that's asking that question wants to understand what is heaven? What's it like? Where is it located? Who will be there? How can I experience it? And I love that. But in saying, will we get to spend eternity in heaven with our loved ones? The question itself reflects a misunderstanding of the nature of heaven, the nature of hell, the nature of eschatology, which is what Christians call this kind of the science of the last things. Because here's kind of a newsflash that if you're a Christian, heaven is not your eternal destination. Now, some of you are panicking a little bit and starting to get angry, and I want you to just stick with me here because I am going to affirm some biblical, historical, classic Christian doctrines of the last things, that is to say eschatology, but it is true that heaven is not your eternal destination. And so when we ask the question, will we get to spend eternity in heaven with our loved ones? We're not going to spend eternity in heaven at all. So let me walk you through it. Because what I want for us to do as a community of faith is understand the future that God has planned for us and how that changes our life in the here and now. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for this time together. Thanks that we have a secure and firm hope for the future. I pray, oh God, that you would give us wisdom and insight into what that is and help us to adjust, change, be transformed by the power of your spirit today because of this knowledge that we have of your secure hope and your great future for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you were to kind of picture the here and now and the life to come, most of us would picture kind of earth, right? Where we live now, planet earth, 
the cosmos, the universe, and someday when we die, our disembodied consciousness will go to one of two places. It will either go to heaven or to hell. Let's call it the good place and the bad place. So if here is where we're living now, where is heaven located? Straight up, right? Up here. And hell is down here, like core of the earth. And up here in heaven, there are spirits floating around. We're all playing harps and we're on clouds and God is there. And if you kind of go to the next phase of that and more, you know, or less cartoonish than that, you know, our loved ones are there and it's eternal bliss and happiness, but we're not exactly sure even how to articulate that. And then for hell, you know, there's a little guy with a pitchfork and he's got little horns and a tail with a, you know, a split on the end of it and he's running around and it's really, really hot. And if you even go less cartoonish than that, again, disembodied spirits, you kind of got the horror uh, movie or horror movie kind of version of hell. And I want you to know that on the landscape of Christian thought and biblical thought, those are very, very new notions. Those initial kind of ideas of heaven up here and hell down here and that this up here was kind of disembodied spirits and this was disembodied spirits and, you know, people on clouds and then people in kind of, you know, a really hot place and it was really difficult to be there. Those were medieval. Many of them rose with uh, Dante's work that you might be familiar with. And over time, those things developed because of culture and history and how the world was responding to things and Western thoughts. And so what we're left with, by and large, is a pretty significant misunderstanding of the nature of what's to come heaven is not up here and hell down here. And, you know, some of that stuff that we have in terms of imagery is not necessarily pulled directly from the biblical testimony. So today we are going to address this very critical question. What is going to happen when we die? Because the statistics are still there, right? A hundred percent of us will die. And what is it that's going to happen when we die? So again, we're talking about eschatology. This is the kind of $2 theological word for death, judgment, final destiny, those types of things. Now, some of you today might be disappointed because I'm not going to talk about the rapture or the millennium or the tribulation or the beast and the thing and all that. I don't want to talk about all that stuff. It's very, very complicated and there's lots of different views about it. But what I want to talk about is what God has in store for you believer in Christ, what God has in store for you. And the difficult part of this question is that the Bible doesn't necessarily kind of directly and very clearly articulate all of the, you know, or answer all of the questions that we might have about what's to come. It doesn't necessarily. Jesus is concerned with bringing his kingdom in the here and now. He's concerned with some other things. He does talk about the nature of what's to come. But a lot of what we get from the biblical testimony are what N.T. Wright calls signposts. Uh, Let me read directly from N.T. Wright's book called Surprised by Hope. He writes this, All Christian language about the future is a set of signposts pointing into a mist. We don't have a clear understanding quite yet. As Paul would say, now we see in a mirror dimly. But then on the other side of this thing, we'll see it in full. Yeah, that's what N.T. Wright is affirming. 
he continues. He says, signposts don't normally provide you with advanced photographs of what you'll find at the end of the road, but that doesn't mean they aren't pointing in the right direction. So today, what we're going to do is examine the biblical signposts. Now, again, they're not going to provide us, as N.T. Wright would say, with advanced photographs of what we're going to experience in the life to come. Rather, they are going to point us in the right direction of understanding at least some of the future that God has in store for us. And what I want to do is kind of start with the end in mind. So if you kind of imagine your life on a trajectory, right? You were born over here, and then way over here is kind of your eternal destination. We're going to talk about this first. We're going to start with the end in mind because the reality is the Bible gives us far more clarity about this piece here than it does about these middle pieces here, kind of what happens in that interim state. We're going to talk about it, but let's start with the end in mind. So, so here's first point I'd like to make is, is that your eternal destination, if you have trusted Christ, is a new creation. A new creation. The Bible teaches that earth, kind of where you live now, and heaven, the place where God makes his presence most known. It's not exactly, certainly not at all really, a place where disembodied spirits are floating around with harps, right? But the place where God makes his presence most known and the earth you live in now will one day unite. God will do this in order to make a new creation. I want to point out a couple of scriptures that talk very explicitly about this day. Isaiah 65, verse 17, God says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Isaiah 66, verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Second Peter 3, now we're in the New Testament. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, John's vision of the future, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, uses the exact same language. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. John also talks about a heavenly city descending and then uniting with the earth that we live in now. And this is the new creation that we will live in, those who have trusted Christ. Uh, Wayne Grudem is a famous and very conservative modern biblical scholar. And in his systematic theology, he writes this, listen closely. In fact, the biblical teaching is richer than that. What he means by that is heaven, earth, hell. <laughs> he says it's richer than that. It tells us that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, an entirely new creation, and we will live with God there. That's your final destination. That's the secure hope that we have as believers in Christ, that one day God will restore and redeem and renew all things, unite heaven and earth, and we will live with God there. 
Now, this is based on some very foundational Christian doctrine, if you haven't noticed. First is the inherent goodness of creation. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and over and over and over, he calls it good, good, good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. So why would one day God just decide, well, now it's just bad? Okay, it's marred by sin. Yes, it's broken, but it needs restoration, not deletion. That's different. The goodness of creation is there and it existed pre-fall and pre-sin. And so God's aim is to restore and redeem it, not replace it. Number two, the effects of sin, right? We talk about this all the time, that the sin of humankind didn't just fracture our relationship with God, though it did, but it fractured all of the cosmos. It fractured God's perfect creation. All of a sudden work became difficult. All of a sudden relationships were skewed and severed. All of those things that God created perfect are now imperfect because of the effects of sin. Well, one day God will enter in, uh, restore and renew the world and eliminate both sin and its consequences for a new heavens and a new earth and a new creation in which we will live with God. And finally, it points to God's grand redemptive story. Certainly, Jesus came to die in our place so our sins could be forgiven. Yes, and and God's grand redemptive plan is to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. This is God's grand redemptive story. And it points to this day where heaven and earth will unite, God will do so, and we will live in a perfect creation with him. So, what will that be like? Well, a couple of signposts. One, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, we will live in a restored world. A restored world. What that means, Christians, and this is a, a foundational Christian doctrine, is that the paradise or the new creation that we will live in with God is not just a state of mind. This is not just kind of a conscious bliss or a you know nirvana, to borrow a word from another uh, faith system and faith background. This is not just kind of peace in one's mind and one's spirit. Rather, we will live in a physical world that is perfect and restored. And it's a place, not just a state of mind. And that world again, as we've mentioned, will be a world without sin and without the effects of sin. I'm going to point to Revelation chapter 21 again, where Jesus promises, and the Bible promises that Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So in this restored world, Without sin, what we're living in now, or what we will be living in then, uh, more, uh, more accurately speaking, is a world without death, without crying, without mourning, without pain. See, these are the effects of sin that God will remove from his restored world. Third, we will have a resurrected body. So again, Contra the notion that we will kind of our disembodied souls will go to heaven and or hell and live for eternity in those places. Uh, Paul comes in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and talks very explicitly that we will live in a physical body in this restored world. I don't know about you, but I kind of want the rocks body. 
that's kind of what I want as my restored body. You can pick whoever you want, but that's kind of what I'm aiming for. But it will be a body that doesn't grow old and doesn't get sick, doesn't get a diagnosis, doesn't have aches and pains when you, you know, right after you work out or for me, right when I get up in the morning, you know, all of those things go away. Why? Because what we experience in our bodies now is the effects of sin. When God removes that, gives us a new physical resurrected body, we will live in that body with God in that restored world. And finally, God will put the world to rights. God will put the world to rights. Now, that may be an unfamiliar phrase for some of you. N.T. Wright uses it in his book, Surprised by Hope. And uh, it may be kind of a British thing or whatever, but essentially it's God bringing justice or judgment on the world. Now, many of us, when we think about God's judgment, we think about something negative, right? God is passing judgment on the world. But almost categorically speaking, biblically, God's justice or judgment is a good thing. It's where the wicked are put away. Those who abuse and oppress are not allowed to do so anymore. And the poor are elevated and exalted. Those who have been marginalized are given a place at the table. And all things are right once again. This is the restored world that we live in. So here's what we're saying about your final destiny, that kind of end place over here that we look forward to one day, is that God's future for you is better than you ever dreamed. It's better than you've ever dreamed. You know, we think of heaven believers. We think of heaven and we're going, yeah, okay, I'll be with my loved ones, but floating around like kind of some disembodied spirit thing and, you know, singing all the time. Like, is that really where I want to go? Well, I guess that sounds better than eternal torment and burning. Yeah, but it doesn't sound great. Well, God comes along and he says, no, 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 no. My future for you is better than you've ever imagined. It's like when I tell my kids, look, just hang tight and wait. I know that you really, really want that cheap bubble gum from the convenience store down the road. But you know what I have in store for you? It's what I made my daughter a couple weeks ago. A s'more. Ugh. And not just a s'more. A s'more that I roasted a marshmallow myself and I put Hershey's chocolate on it and cookie butter that I got from a place called Trader Joe's in the US. And cookie butter is exactly what you think it is. It's butter made out of cookies and it's delightful. And there's graham crackers involved and it exploded my six-year-old's little mind. And it was far better than that bubble gum she wanted at 2 p.m. from the convenience store down the road. See, in the same way, as believers, we look towards this heaven thing where we will live with God in bliss. And yeah, that might be okay, but God's going, man, I've got something better for you. And it's a world without sin and without the effects of sin. It's a restored body. It's a place where you're living with me. And any kind of distance that we have experienced in this life from God will be restored and renewed. And we will be able to walk closely with him and experience the world as God intended it. Wow, that's pretty cool. Now, question number two, 
Will all of humankind throughout all of history live with God in that new creation? Now, the short answer is no. Now, a lot of people refer to a place called hell, and I wouldn't deny the existence of hell. However, once again, kind of where we started was that we have a skewed vision of what hell kind of is or isn't. And so let me talk a little bit about the destination for those who do not repent and believe and trust Christ for salvation. Uh, the issue is that Jesus, when he talks about this word hell, he uses a Greek word called Gehenna. That's what's translated into the New Testament as hell in English. Now, Gehenna was a real place, literally. It was on the south side of Jerusalem, and it was essentially a trash dump, and they would burn trash in that kind of landfill. And so when Jesus says the fire is never quenched at Gehenna, he's talking about a literal place that literally had fires burning all the time because they were burning trash. Or when he says the worm never dies, he's talking about a literal place with literal worms that were eating, maggots eating the trash outside of Jerusalem. Now, when he says that those who don't trust Christ will go to this place called Gehenna, is it really that Jesus or God himself is going to send or usher a whole bunch of people into this valley on the south side of Jerusalem that you can visit today? Oh, I don't think Jesus literally means that you're going to live in this valley and that there will be literal fire and literal worms. Rather, he's using metaphorical language to help us understand the impact of rejecting Christ in this life. So I want to point uh, specifically to John chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus says this. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, he's talking about the Son of Man himself, and come out. And those who have done good to the res resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Please don't get caught up in the dose, those who have done good and those who have done evil. Is Jesus preaching a gospel of works here? Absolutely not. He's talking more about the eternal destination of those who trust Christ and those who don't, those who put their faith in God and those who don't. And he uses this phrase, resurrection to judgment. Now, I prefer that phrase to the word hell because the word hell has been kind of, you know, impregnated, so to speak, with so much meaning over time. And it's false meaning or it's not accurate meaning to the scripture. And this word resurrection to judgment is not a word we use all the time. So let me pack it up with some meaning for us. First, when Jesus talks about this resurrection of judgment, he talks about the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew chapter 13. Do I think there's literal crying and literal gnashing of teeth in this resurrection to judgment? Not necessarily what I believe. My read of the scripture is that Jesus is using a picture or a metaphor to help us understand the severity of that situation, place, and state of being. He talks about eternal punishment in Matthew chapter 25. He talks about a place where the fire never goes out in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. He's talking explicitly about Gehenna. So what we're advocating here or affirming here is, yes, uh, 
there awaits a resurrection to judgment for those who don't trust Christ of eternal conscious torment. Now, here's the thing. Many of us don't like this idea, do we? of eternal conscious judgment. In fact, C.S. Lewis, one of the most respected Christian theologians of the 20th century wrote this. He says, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. He's talking about hell, if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. And it has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. In other words, we cannot escape the notion that God has in store a resurrection to judgment for those who don't trust Christ. And many of us would say, well, I kind of want everybody to live in that new creation. That's what I think a God of love would do. That would be a universalist, universalist viewpoint. But I think if we were faced with, hey, so then what do you do with Hitler? Do you want him to live in that new creation? What do you do with Stalin? Or what do you do with people like that? And we go, well, I I don't know about those guys. I don't know if they should live in that new creation. Okay, so what we've now established is there is a standard. There is a line. And if you kind of live above it, you should be in the new creation. And if you kind of live below it, then you should be in kind of a resurrection to judgment. And so here's the deal. In order for God to be a good God, he has to be a just God. He has to do justice to those who have oppressed and abused and taken the image of God and killed millions of people. He has to do justice, not just to those people, but to anyone who has rebelled from him. And so the deal is what we've just agreed upon by saying that, you know, Hitler doesn't belong in the new creation is that there is a line. There is a line. And Wayne Grudem argues this. He says, the argument that eternal punishment is unfair wrongly assumes that we know the extent of the evil done when sinners rebel against God. Let let me say that again. He says, the argument that eternal punishment is unfair wrongly assumes that we know the extent of the evil done when sinners rebel against God. What we're saying is, what Grudem is saying is this. In our minds, we think, yes, Hitler, he deserves that. But I or my family or my friends, we don't deserve that. And God comes in and he goes, you think the line is here. Friends, the line is way up here. And you all fall short of it, is what Paul would say in Romans chapter 6. You all fall short. And in order for God to be good, God has to be just. He has to punish wickedness, evil, and sin. There has to be a place like that in order for God to be good. So we would reject the universalist view. But that's what's so good about grace, is that God says nobody lives up to the line. But I'm going to send my son Jesus, who does. And he will experience that separation in your place, that judgment in your place, so that you don't have to be resurrected to judgment, but resurrected to life. I want to uh, real quickly submit to you a very brief understanding in my own view of what that resurrection to judgment is and may even be like. In my understanding, uh, Jesus 
will be fully present and God will be fully present with his people in the new creation. No sin, no selfishness, no injustice to fracture or distance us, fracture that relationship or distance us from God. So if we look on the opposite side of things, if God's total presence is with us in the new creation, then it's God's total absence on the other side. And not just God's total absence, but all the gifts that God brings and gives. The gifts of good food, the gifts of relationships, the gifts of uh, being with one another, the gifts of feeling a cool breeze on our face. Those are all gifts of the grace of God. N.T. Wright calls this in his book, The Experience of Being Ex-Human. So if we believe that God's design for redemption and humanity is total human flourishing, and he will bring that to bear and into existence at the new creation, then ex-humanity or not, not total human flourishing, the opposite of that is true about the resurrection to eternal judgment. C.S. Lewis would say, essentially, this is somebody throughout their life saying, no, God, not thy will be done, my will be done. And then at the resurrection to judgment, God eventually says, okay, thy will be done. You rejected me, then you reject me and all the gifts of my grace. And this, the Bible teaches, is the eternal destination for those who trust Christ and those who do not. The resurrection to life in God's new creation and the resurrection to judgment. So what happens in between? Or what's the transition? In other words, here's our final destination. Here's where we're living now. How is that going to happen? And now we're just gonna be really brief and really pithy because the Bible is pretty brief and pretty pithy about these things. First, Jesus will come again. The Bible talks about this all over the place. 1 Thessalonians 4, Colossians 3, Titus 2, Matthew 24, John 14, Revelation 1. <sighs> And more specifically, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, I'll read it. The author of Hebrews says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus appeared one time 2,000 years ago to deal with sin, live up to that line that we talked about so that we could be resurrected to eternal life. The second time he comes, he will do so for two reasons. One, to judge the world. And there's two aspects of this judgment. First, there's the great white throne of judgment. The Bible talks about Jesus as judge, separating the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. This is eternal uh, resurrection to life and resurrection to judgment. He's making that distinction. Then there is a second judgment seat that the Bible talks about. Did you know that? In the original language, the word is bima, and it's the seat from which Jesus will reward believers for what they've done in this life. It, it, Jesus talks about it in parables all over the New Testament. Revelation talks about it, that there will be a moment, the Bema seat, where Jesus gathers the church to himself and rewards us for what we've done in this life. Wow. Now, 
A lot of folks get up, caught up on like, you know, how many rewards do I get? And are they crowns? And are they jewels in my crown? And that kind of stuff. And Wayne Grudem comes along and I think it's awesome. And he basically says that our focus on the quantity of rewards, how many we're going to get, and the quality being, is it a crown or is it a jewel, really reveals our materialism and our greed, doesn't it? <laughs> so Jesus has a plan to reward believers for what they've done in this life. And, and what if those rewards were the actual task that we get to do? What if, what, what if it's that you love gardening more than anything in the world and Jesus commissions you to be a gardener in the new creation? What if you love being a public speaker more than anything in the world or making music or drawing pictures or whatever? And God commissions you to do that and removes any brokenness or sin that you might feel. What if it's total joy and fulfillment? I don't know what those rewards are, frankly. I don't. But God's future for us, once again, is better than we could ever imagine. So we can trust him with it. So Jesus will come back. The Bible talks about this as Parousia, his total presence with us again, not like a spaceman coming down, you know, an astronaut coming down his feet through the clouds, something like that. But he will be present with us once again in order to judge both divide sheep and goats, wheat and tares, those who trusted him and those who did not, and also to reward believers for what they've done. So what about right now? Because if we look forward and we say the new creation hasn't happened yet, and it hasn't, and, and Jesus hasn't come back to judge the living and the dead and to reward believers for what they've done in this life. So what's happened to those who have died now? Where are they? And the Bible is increasingly unclear <laughs> about the current state of things. So let's picture it this way. Here's where you're born. Here's your final destination. Here's where Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, reward believers, and save those who have trusted him. And in the meantime, before this, likely, you will die, or you've known somebody who has died. And before the resurrection to life and judgment, the Bible seems to indicate, <laughs> seems to indicate, that that individual's soul or spirit or consciousness goes to be with God if they have trusted Christ in kind of a rest or bliss, or let's use this word because Jesus uses this word with the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in what? Paradise. Not the new creation yet, although that will be paradise-ish or paradise like, but today you will be with me in paradise. Essentially, the Bible seems to indicate that those of you who have friends, relatives, and I do too, that have died in Christ, currently their body remains here on this earth, either buried or cremated or whatever it was, organs donated. Their soul has gone to be with God in a bliss and resting place from whence they do not desire to return. I have a friend who used to kick off every funeral the exact same way. And he would say, the most certain thing that we can say today is that the person we are here to celebrate and remember does not want to come back from where they are. They exist with God and waiting for the resurrection of the body and the totally renewed creation. 
That friend, actually, who used to kick off every funeral that day is at rest with God, waiting on a new creation. Now, when it comes to the souls of those who don't trust Christ, don't know Christ, where are they? The short answer is, I don't know. Remember, these are kind of signposts pointing into a mist. We are not given photographs of where they are currently. Here's what the Bible seems to indicate. It seems to indicate that those who have trusted Christ go to be with God in a resting place, awaiting the resurrection to life. Those who have not trusted Christ go to a place where there is the absence of God and his grace and gifts, awaiting resurrection to the judgment. Once again, because in order for God to be good, he has to be just. That's what the Bible seems to indicate. Now, I want to answer one real specific question that I got on Facebook Live a couple weeks ago. Then I want to talk quickly about the implications for us today. One of the questions was about purgatory and if there's a purgatory that exists. And if you don't know this notion or concept of purgatory, it's basically a place where a soul would go post-death in order to do two things. One is to be purged of their sin, hence the name purgatory. And, and, and also to kind of pay for their sins. One, to have them removed, and then also to kind of pay for their sins. And so when that time of purgatory is up, they will be given uh, a place with God in that bliss or paradise awaiting the resurrection to life. Now, the evangelical Christian church would teach that purgatory for many, many reasons is not a biblical concept or notion. Interestingly enough, those who come from a Catholic background where the notion and nature of purgatory is taught in those churches would agree that it's not a biblical notion. Seriously. Zach Hayes, uh, who is a Catholic theologian, wrote this in a, in a book uh, called Four Views of Hell. He says, It has long been the conviction of the Roman Catholic Church that Christians must reckon with the possibility that not everything was said in the Bible and that new and important insights and therefore new formulas may legitimately emerge later in Christian history. What he's saying is, because he's talking about purgatory, is that there is no evidence for purgatory in the scripture Rather, that was a theology and a doctrine that developed over time over the course of church history. And so from this perspective, from my perspective and the perspective of our church, we would say that what we know about God is revealed in the Bible primarily. And if the Bible and church history come into conflict with one another, uh, the Bible is the trump card over church history. So the question of purgatory, though it is a theological one, is really an epistemological question as well. It's how do we know what we know about God? And the Catholic Church would say we know what we know about God from the Bible and from church history. And the evangelical church would say that we know what we know about God from the Bible, and that always trumps church history. Does that mean Zach Hayes and other Catholics are not smart or not wonderful people or not believers? No, it doesn't mean any of that. All it means is that we would reject the notion of purgatory because there's no biblical evidence for it, and it contradicts uh, the grace of God. So, 
What does that even matter for us today, right? What does that even matter for us? Our eternal destination. And that whether or not we have trusted Christ determines that. And, and a new creation and the resurrection of the body and all that stuff. Well, well it means three things. And I want to just share them with you uh, very quickly and then we'll conclude. First, I would encourage you to start thinking about it. Most of us don't want to, right? We don't want to think about death. We don't want to think about the life to come. We don't want to think about what happens after we die. It's not fun. Most of us are not just kind of waiting at a bus stop for the Grim Reaper to pick us up. (laughs) One of my favorite poets, Emily Dickinson, though, once wrote this. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. (laughs) What Dickinson is saying is, you may not want to stop for death, but one day death is going to stop for you. You may not want to stop and think about it. You may not want to stop and look forward to it. You may not want to reorganize your life based on the fact that you you are a being who has been given immortality by God, either to resurrection to life or resurrection to death, resurrection to glory or resurrection to judgment. So I would encourage you to begin to think about, if you've not trusted Christ, what it is that's going to happen to you for eternity. Start to think about it. Second, start planning for it. (laughs) Start planning for it. Remember we talked about the nature of rewards and biblical rewards, and some of you are thinking, well, okay, if I'm storing up treasures in heaven, there has to be a heaven that I'm going to go to in order to access those treasures. N.T. Wright says it this way, and I love it. He says, if I have a fridge full of beer for my friend, it doesn't mean that my friend has to go live in my fridge, right? It doesn't mean that you're going to live in heaven. Rather, we will live in that renewed creation, but we will store up for ourselves treasures or rewards that we will be given at that Bema seat of Christ. It's a lot like retirement, right? You got to start saving now. And, and living our lives in such a way that we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That means doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. That means moving the kingdom of God forward in the world. That means continuing to be the type of person that invites God's kingdom to come now as it is in heaven. So start thinking for it. Start planning for it. Start stocking up on eternal rewards and let that be a motivation for your holy living. And third, let it fuel your evangelism. Evangelism is is not for naught. It's not for nothing. When you tell somebody about Jesus and they repent and believe, it changes their eternity. Think about it. It changes their eternity. That doesn't mean that our evangelism looks like this. Trust Christ or you're going to hell. You know, we just talked about this, that cartoonized version of that, and it's, it's, it's got all kinds of meaning attached to it that's not biblical. But, but the, the nature of our evangelism looks like this, is that God has a future for you beyond what you could have imagined. And he's provided a way for you to enter into it through his son Jesus and by his grace. Ah, isn't that good news? and letting it fuel your evangelism and inviting people to participate in the here and now of the life that God extends to them. 
and the life to come. Let's conclude this way. One day, we're going to smell the color orange. <laughs> One day, those signposts won't be just signposts pointing into a mist. One day, they won't just be photographs that we're looking at. One day, we will see completely. We will experience God's kingdom in technicolor. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Tears will be wiped away. There'll be no more crying or pain or mourning or death. And we will live forever with God in his new creation. And that's good news. Let's pray. I'm not sure why, God, but a familiar hymn, at least to me, comes to mind. Sing them over again to me, the wonderful words of life. May these words that I've spoken today, hopefully words of truth from your scripture, words that you wanted to speak to this community of faith today, may they be wonderful words of life for us this Resurrection Sunday. In Christ's name, God's people said, Amen.